Mustafa and Ken here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. Alert Medic One response. Can you say that again? No problem. Okay, we're going to keep that. That's, That's perfect. Right. That's beautiful. Why don't you introduce yourself? So do you want me to, I mean, you have that thing with the affiliations, man. You know, I should say I'm a medical director of some suspicious you, agency or. You can say where you work. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, and to be fair, everyone knows where you work. That's right. I mean. Everyone knows you. What if I use a pseudonym? Maybe you should. All right. Well, my name's Ben Lawner. It's nice to be with you today. I do medical direction for the one and only Baltimore City Fire Department and Maryland Express Care, which is a critical care transport service involving both air and ground arms. Uh, I also work as an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, though the dean will probably say I have to use that first. So I'm sure we can edit that out and flip all those credentials around. No. All right. <laughs> never mind. My apologies to the dean. Can I have a question? Can I ask you a question? Does every doctor get like an associate professorship, or is that like a? Absolutely not. It's highly coveted, involving a lot of bribes and good deals. No, it's a it's a rank. It takes a while. It takes a while. We have all or maybe like a professor tenure. Like, do you have to do it? I guess that's what I'm. Asking. You do not. You do not. If you okay. choose to work at an academic university, you can get on one of two or three tracks. So this is one of the promotional ladders for clinician scholars. Mm. If I researched a lot, maybe I could be farther along the line than I am. But let's it, write a paper. It, we have, we have, we can share that to Alert Medic One listeners. Well, we haven't for a discount. Well, <laughs> put your money where your mouth is, Captain. <laughs> That's so, an interesting topic, though. Yeah, that we've been wanting to talk about for sure. Because EMS really doesn't know what they don't know when it comes to research. Oh, this is another big one. I think yeah. I have a screenshot We've of you. This is another big one. What, there was something about something, and then you commented, or you responded to one of my comments and said, bingo, or this, or something like that, and I screenshotted it and sent it to you and said, I think my life is complete. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, I can't remember what it was. I didn't get any royalties for that Facebook comment or whatever it was, but I look forward to reliving that prestige since it made you so happy. If yeah. I went on the scratch off, I'll give you a dollar. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's why. Endless motivation. A testament to your skill. and <laughs> Thank you for the scratch also. That's right. We might of have course. to scratch those on air after. Yeah, we could certainly talk about EMS research. It's very easy to do. It takes two seconds. How'd you get into EMS? Well, it all started a long time ago. Long walk on the beach. Uh, you know, for me, actually, I just, um, I don't know. Uh, what's curious to me is I always knew I had an interest in medicine. I didn't really have a medical background. And EMS uh, offered me a very relatively easy introduction. I mean, EMT school was um, pretty cool. So I was very young and when I was 18, I thought it would be a great way to get some experience under my belt, but it wasn't part of an overall grand plan. I thought it would be a great intro and um, uh, EMS has a lot of challenges, but suffice it to say, EMS does not disappoint with exposure with respect to exposure to patient care. Mm -hmm. So actually that's kind of where I wanted to, to kind of take this to. I was really curious how you made the transition from paramedic to physician. Because not all our listeners are going to know, you started your career as a paramedic, but now you're obviously a highly accomplished physician. Hmm. Did you work as a paramedic? For, of course I did, man. I'm not one of those patch medics that just puts it on a resume. Absolutely. It's not just street cred. <laughs> Don't you do your pre-podcasting research? But yeah, I we can certainly talk about that. I So I came a very non-traditional way when I... When I 
when I had enough experience to really fulfill and substantiate that desire to go to medical school, um, I did manage to get into medical school from college. So I thought that was going to happen. However, I was a little bit naive with respect to, you know, moving and the whole college track. So I found out that it was, you know, all was not as um, glamorous as it was supposed to be. So I thought I was going to go straight through. But um, there was quite a bit of an adjustment and I did not have a good time at where I went to uh, undergrad. So then I said, well, how could I build upon my experience and build upon my interest in medicine? So I became a paramedic and actually worked. And I have to say that being a paramedic did not at all help me get into medical school. Absolutely not. It, it made me, um, you know, I think non-traditional applicants, especially if you don't follow a, um, a prescribed pre-medical track, if you don't have good advisors that can put you at a disadvantage. But I word. Will, yeah, well, that's true. But I will say um, I was light years ahead of many of my colleagues that went straight through with respect to patient care. So I wouldn't begrudge anybody, but uh, paramedic was was really key to solidifying my desire to go into emergency medicine and giving me some patient care skills. I mean, I, I can clearly remember many of the cardiac arrests in the hospital, and I was just so dumbfounded as how people found it to be so stressful. And as a paramedic, you barely get your pulse up. I mean, I worked for five years, so it was very good for experience, not so much good for the traditional medical school accelerated track. Where'd you work? At the one and only Alachua County Fire Rescue. Shout out to North Central Florida. Nice. ACFR, man. It, it, absolutely in Gainesville. And then I became, uh, I was a really crappy firefighter, but they made me go to fire school because we were unionized. So, um, yeah, I spent five years on the bus. And despite the fact that I was a card-carrying IAFF member, I spent exactly zero shifts on a fire truck. So yeah. that may be familiar. And that was way back in 1997. Very cool. Yeah, man. So, you know, you, you like that was too, that was too long. We're going to give you a, we're going to give you a time limit. Yeah, we're going to take a five minute. All right, let me know. Sorry. We'll edit that out. (laughs) So, so you went to medical school and (laughs) you became an EM physician. You kind of circled back around, came an EMS medical director. How'd you get into teaching? How did that kind of roll out for you? Man, these are very difficult questions. So for me, I, I realized when I was going through medical school, uh, one was, um, you know, medical school is full time, so I didn't really have a lot of discretionary income besides the loans and the bigger debt hole that I was digging myself into. And I realized that medical students, although we were very good at histology and immunology and all this other stuff, we really there wasn't an opportunity for patient care. So how I got into teaching was there was a uh, division of emergency medical services at Nova Southeastern University, College of Osteopathic Medicine. And if you have any question about where that is, it's the Harvard of the South, no problem. But um, that division hired a bunch of paramedics, and there were a bunch of medics there that were teaching, and they were earning money to uh, teach a lot of the merit badge courses like ACLS and PALS. They also did like ATLS. They assisted some of the surgeons in doing that. So that's where I... um, I actually started not only teaching paramedics and EMTs, but also my uh, medical school colleagues. And it was very successful. I loved it. I earned a little bit of extra money, and it was a a big passion. So it really not only um, helped me support myself throughout medical school, but I realized you had a lot to contribute, especially as a paramedic, because not not every medical student has, you know, real-world experience. And so it was good to keep my, you know, feet in the proverbial patient care pond. Okay. So do you have anything, Moose? Or no, no. Okay, no. so kind of bringing it full circle back to where you are now. Um, do you feel that – well, actually, let me phrase it this way. 
What do you feel the role of the medical director really is in an EMS agency? Because it seems very multi multifaceted. We're going to be right? dropping bombs all night. So, so if you want to run, run now. You've got, <laughs> you've got operations. There's nowhere to run. It's dark and concrete bound. <laughs> <laughs> you've got operations you have to look after. There's the administration. There's the QA, QI, QM. There's the education and training. There's even down to things like, you know, what supplies we're going to use, dispatch procedures, so many things. How, how, how do you as a medical director wrap all that up into one job? I think you already answered your question. So exactly that. Um, you know, it's funny because there are things, you know, I was a very experienced um, paramedic. I was an experienced, you know, I, I thought I was an informed consumer about emergency medicine and and you realize you have so much to learn. Uh, Baltimore City uh, just really blows a lot of expectations out of the water with respect to what you know what is expected of you. So what I would say is ideally, the medical director is more of a chief medical officer, right? It's somebody with a lot of operational experience that can lend their education and training to the practice of out-of-hospital medicine because fundamentally what we're doing is we're essentially practicing medicine and we have to extend those principles and the, the evidence-based continuity of care uh, to the field, right? They're not two separate things, but it takes, I think it takes a special amount of insight in order to do that, which is why we have EMS fellowships and the like. Um, I, I just want to inter- interrupt you there. That's a key point, though, where you're the, that's not the norm, right? I mean, there, I don't know, I think in Maryland, we're blessed, but I don't know what the ratio is, but it's, it's not an automatic thing for a physician to be operationally adept, Right, that is a great question. Yeah, yeah, great point. So you're you're absolutely right, and that is a that is another um, virtual podcast about what the medical director should do to be prepared. But you know, EMS fellowships are very good at operational medicine, and they have their own sort of um, areas of concentration. And I and I would say that they do prepare you a lot better than if you're just out of school. But it's something that you can learn. So um, in terms of you know what what the medical director's job is i would say especially in large cities if you're talking about urban um, areas or if you're talking about uh, major metropolitan jurisdictions there's a lot of emergency public health and i can't emphasize that enough because if you don't have research skills if you don't have people skills if you don't understand the hierarchy or disease surveillance it's very difficult to um, take the lessons and take the practices and really inform operations but Moose, you have a really good point. The, the other question in discussion is, well, what do physicians need to do that? Um, and it's not always the norm um, to have EMS fellowship to train positions. Um, that being said, I, I think uh, for people that are experienced, there are people that have grandfathered in, for example, and you can certainly learn. Um, what the EMS fellowship attempts to do is give you the scaffolding upon which to build a good medical director career. But that's somewhat new. I mean, I myself did a, an accredited EMS fellowship because it simply was not available way back when I was a postgraduate emergency medicine resident. So we're still evolving. And, and quite frankly, EMS, you know, is not an essential service in America. And if you want physician medical directors to be highly trained and to be uniform, we have to be able to pay them. And cur- the current mechanisms, I think it's very difficult to figure out how to do full-time EMS medical direction with the way EMS is. Can you expand on that? Because a lot of our listeners don't know what ex- essential services. So an essential, when we talk about when we talk about essential services, you know, you're essentially essentially talking about fire, police, and EMS. And and really, although communities, and this is a, a huge oversimplification, you need to have police and fire protection. But EMS is not mandated depending upon how the community or how the city is organized. So. So there are volunteer EMS agencies, there are third service EMS agencies, and it is extremely variable. 
And unless EMS is a service that is funded and is sort of um, established via the law, it's very difficult to figure out how you guarantee the standard. And I think that's part and parcel with attracting, you know, not only career paramedics, but, you know, full-time EMS medical directors that also do the jobs. When we say essential service, we're talking about something that is in law, something that is statutory, something that is required. Um, and I think it, it goes without saying that the EMS throughout America, although we're highly developed in terms of protocols, um, EMS systems are structured very differently in accordance with the community and the tax base. Yeah, so just for our listeners to, you know, bring it home, I would encourage anyone to just Google whatever county or city or wherever you live and then look up the, you know, your annotated, annotated code. So you're in Maryland, you can look up Comar, uh, whatever county you're in. If you're, uh, you know, incorporated, you can look up your county charter. Uh, and then it's going to be a little boring, but if you read through it, you're going to see exactly what services we're talking about. And you're, you're somewhere in there, I imagine it's going to say who's responsible for firing in EMS. It's probably something from the 70s to the 90s, depending on when you were incorporated or if you're not, right? Or no, what, like charter governments, I guess I should say. But um, I would encourage you to look at that because that affects you at home and your family at home every day. And that's where, uh, and I already said this statement, but like where the rubber hits the road, who pays for what, it comes from there. It's not, you know, it's not like any federal entity. It may not even be a state entity. Those are the folks that set the guardrails. But you're, the, 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 pinpoint where the operations are rooted is your local government's like charter or equivalent. Wow. Yeah. 100%. What a great summary. Yeah. But I think that's exactly when you look at the patchwork of EMS systems, I think that really explains why we have that. Um, And that's not saying that we need to have a nationalized, federalized or regionalized EMS system. But I think that's a big discussion to have is how do we finance this? Because the reality right now is depending upon where you are, that um, can affect the type of EMS service you have. Absolutely. So it was pretty fascinating even when I spent my three years in Pittsburgh. I mean, you had a, an urban tax-supported system that was a third service within the city, and you'd go out 40 miles, and it ranged from a volunteer service to a private service, and, and, and that's the type of variation that may not always benefit patients, and that's no disrespect to any EMS service. It just really looks at the fact that you know, communities sometimes can be on their own, yeah. and uh, it's not standardized. Yeah, and I absolutely agree that the answer is absolutely not a federalized or even maybe a state-based, like you know, or like a standardized state system. I mean, because quite frankly, the money's not there. Mm-hmm. Like we, uh, um, uh, there's a term called an unfunded mandate, right? That, I mean, I did get the, you a lottery ticket. The money sure, might be there. Sure, sure, <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, from the uh, and that term is usually used when the federal government puts stu- you know, uh, puts requirements on state governments but do not fund them, right? Um, so yeah, the answer is absolutely not there. But as we are seeing, uh, you know, changes in go- governance, expansion in governance, and also expansion in the populations that we're serving. At some point, we do need to address these uh, sometimes archaic and ancient systems that have not kept up with demand. And the the stress is being felt by the folks on the ground doing the work. The problem is that, you know, people don't want to pay money and it's going to cost money and it's going to cause pain and it's going to cause hurt feelings because you look in the county I grew up in where the fire and EMS system is enshrined in the county charter to be handled by that county's volunteer fire and EMS association. And maybe you have a situation where that organization is no longer keeping up with the needs of the community anymore, but there's still a lot of political power in that organization. It's going to hurt feelings and it's going to cause conflict. And, you know, politically speaking, people don't want to deal with that sometimes. So well said. And unfortunately it's, 
it's a reality that we can't let hurt feelings stand in the way of hurt people. Or at least stand in the way of an honest conversation because it really isn't about, you know, one service doing a worse job than another. It's really about what is just and fair for patients or callers, you know, in a particular geographic location. And, right. and, and that is one of the root problems with EMS. I mean, we just even in our preliminary conversation, I think we solved it probably what one fifth of the world of the world's problems. But even in this conversation, you know, you're absolutely right. EMS can do a lot to standardize. And this has been on the table in terms of challenges for EMS as long as we've been incepted. You know? So what's step one? Uh, anyway, I would like to take a break. Um, step <laughs> step one is great. I honestly, I honestly don't know because the problems are so vast. And you know, there's a great saying: if you've seen an EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. I think it starts locally, though, because fundamentally, uh, these local EMS systems are in a the they're much better positioned to figure out what the needs of that community are. And I think we do have excellent success stories within local communities. And there are lots of models. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. I think we just have to have that honest conversation. So step one is community and local advocacy to figure out what the options are. Maybe the first thing is bridging the knowledge gap and figuring out, as you mentioned, you know, what's the code? You know, who is responsible and how do we advance that conversation? I don't pretend to know what the most ideal model for my, you know, for, for another state's EMS system would be. But I think there are a lot of people in place that are well positioned to understand the challenges uh, and the opportunities with any EMS jurisdiction. But that's just a guess that is non-evidence-based, and you can't blame me for following that. And uh, thank you for the disclaimer. Yeah. And I think a lot of things <laughs> fall into that. You know, we've talked a lot about professionalization of uh, you know EMS, uh, further professionalization and, and academic requirements. Uh, and it's hard for, I, I imagine, I don't know, I can't speak for them, but I, ima- I imagine it's hard for national bodies and even... Uh, well, I should hesitate to say that national bodies to uh, give unfunded mandates if there's not a tag, you know, a, a money line at the end of that for the individual paramedic or EMT or whoever to have a financial incentive to get that education. But I think if we can address it at, like you said, the local level or maybe, uh, you know, at other levels, we can we can have a better chance at incre- you know bring everyone forward. I think there needs to be almost like a grassroots movement to address these issues because the general public doesn't understand where there's an issue a lot of the times. I mean, when you see change happen, a lot of times what you hear is something like, you know, the state senator's wife had a heart attack and no ambulance was available. And that's when the state or the county or whoever it was decided, okay, maybe there's an issue here. But I think that a lot of times the general public doesn't understand, hey, we don't have enough paramedics, we don't have enough ambulances, we don't have enough, uh, you know, hospital capacity. Because it doesn't, most people walking around on the street right now, if you go outside this building and ask them if there's an issue in the emergency health care, um, you know, services, they're going to say no. Or they might mm-hmm. say, oh, I heard that, you know, my cousin had to wait 10 hours in the ER mm-hmm. or... I heard that my friend, you know, had to wait for an ambulance for 20 minutes or something like that. But a lot of them have no idea that how strained the system is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think there almost needs to be like, you know, these these prof- going back to these professional organizations, they are the ones that need to be out there saying, hey, we have a problem. We need to advocate for some sort of system change overall. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, the, the NREMT needs to come in here and restructure County X's EMS system. But mm-hmm. I am saying they should be doing things like saying, hey, the system's overburdened, underfunded, and, um, you know, understaffed. 
And for the record, I don't know if they are or not. I don't know yeah, if they are or not. But yeah. that, but that's a problem. Is yeah. as involved as we are with following EMS things. Mm-hmm. If they were standing on Capitol Hill doing that, I feel like we would have heard something. You no, know, we. It's it's so tough, and I, I think this has already probably won the award for one of the most challenging and emotionally depressing uh, podcasts because there's no easy solution. But we also have to work in parallel to get our own house together first because there's a lot of challenges where we're at. I mean, you may remember now that we're ripping band aids off. Uh, we recently had the accreditation battle where ASAP and National Registry of EMT mm-hmm. got involved because we were talking about professional standards for paramedics. And a very valid argument against accreditation and standards is the fact that we don't have the mechanisms deployed to actually reimburse these professionals, right? So a big question is, well, let's fine. Let's get our house in order and require paramedics to have bachelor degrees like they would do in, let's say, the National Health Service in London. But then how do you pay them to work in an environment which is so difficult? So I certainly don't think we're underestimating or underappreciating any of the challenges, but the current environment makes it very difficult, right? Because how do you pay and fund for a professional paramedic when the mechanisms to support those individuals are also not in place with fire service? You know? So counterpoint to that, Dr. Lawner, if I can play devil's advocate, please, as, as I like to sometimes. I had my um, bachelor's degree, by the way, when I went to paramedic school, just, just so you know. Very good. Um, when you look at nursing in the 80s and into the 90s when BSN started to become a requirement and we, we ended up having a huge shortage of nurses and we couldn't pay the nurses and all, all of a sudden we, we started the, – the salaries came up because that was the only way to get nurses again. I mean is that what has to happen to EMS? Is that what's happening to EMS? I look to be very clear. I think that would be an excellent way to go because you know nursing. If we just look at the foundation of that model, their career ladder for advancement is much more prolific and expansive than ours, right? And there's no question that when you graduate, let's say a nursing school, they have worked very hard to standardize those requirements. But what, I'm not saying that is not desired. What I'm saying is it's so difficult to sustain that. Um, and actually, in Pittsburgh, I learned a lot about how that works. Um, you know, they have a bachelor's degree in emergency medicine where you graduate a paramedic that goes through, let's say, critical care, they go through the health STEM, and so these providers are graduating with uh, pre-medical degrees, pre-nursing degrees, uh, preparation for PA school, and what you get is you get um, these paramedics that are into the healthcare system for like maybe two years, and they go on and do quote-unquote something else. However, you do get a renewable supply of paramedics to the pipeline, but supplying that, I think, is very unique in making sure that it's sustainable. Um, but I would agree with you. I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, can we establish the minimum floor for paramedics? Because if what we want is uniformity, you have to produce a uniform product. And uh, before I'm never invited on this podcast again, I think it's fair to say that if you look at paramedics across the country, the standard is not uniform, right? In other words, what education do they get? You know, how do we guarantee it's the same? Um, and are those paramedics are those paramedics all similarly prepared? So speaking to what you're talking about in Pittsburgh, with it sounds like a pretty high turnover of paramedics. That my concern with that system is where are the experienced people? You know, uh, you have a situation where you have this turnover after what two, four, six, eight For years. Sure. Where are the leaders and the preceptors and the educators and the experienced people? you know, the field training officers coming from in that situation. Where's the person who's like the person we were talking about earlier, been doing this for 34 years. Who's, who's going to teach, you know, the new guy 
You know what I mean? The truth is out there. Just keep looking to the sky. You've asked the age old, like imperative question, right? So that is, that is the biggest challenge. And I think that's, that's reflective of the industry. So where does the paramedic who let's say the paramedic is listening to this podcast and they're like, you know what? I want to make a career out of this. And then the challenge is, is where do you support that? I think paramedics go to flight. They go to education, maybe, you know, officers. And look, I think you can make a really good career with some EMS agencies, I'm just saying it's very difficult. Like, how do you recruit and retain them? And that's yeah. part of that question. I think that's what's very difficult because um, I think most people would say the advancement for these paramedics that are graduating with college degrees may not be con- commensurate with their educational investment. So you're absolutely right. You know, then you look back to these local jurisdictions to have to support them, right, to make the promotional positions. And that is that's hard. I don't think there is an answer for that question, but it, I think it, at the very least, it illustrates the complexity of it. Right. It's not about paramedics need to be better educated. It's really about healthcare system change and overall goals of paramedicine. And where, you know, where are we going and where does the advocacy even start? And I think that's where it gets to be particularly challenging. But, yeah, I would agree with you. So where are we going? Uh, Ken? Into the future, maybe. That's right. No, I mean, you know, where are we going? And, and that's a pro- that I think fundamentally is the issue that we're dealing with right now in EMS is we don't have, I mean, sure, we have the, what is it, the, the, the path to 2050 or whatever it is that was laid out, but we don't really have any sort of direct goal of, okay, we want to advance EMS to this point. Sure, we get to come up with some cool new ideas like point-of-care ultrasound or, or something like Like we get a cool new skill or something like that. But what are we really doing in terms of setting appreciable goals and standards for our career? So I got to push back you know? on that a little bit because at least at the state level, we – I was thoroughly impressed of the amount of work that went into the EMS plan uh, or yes, exactly EMS plan. And I, I don't know what analogs there are uh, from other States. I, I think that they, I mean, and, you, and this is a public document anyone can go read. Uh, and maybe I'm more intimately familiar with it because I was, you know, we, we had to help build it or write it. But um, what I would say is the, the goals are there. I just don't think the tracks are there to get there. You know, like we don't have like the those goals are some pretty lofty and very great goals. I think there were a, a, and a lot of members of the community were put made, made to be a part of that process. But the literally the the road to get there does not exist. Like we, we um I've always wondered why we don't have you know, for folks like me, and I might maybe I'm the minority, but like I have a bachelor's degree. I'm looking at advanced education in EMS, and there's an education track at a local university. There's a emergency management track, which anyone in emergency management knows it's completely different than emergency medical services. Completely apples and oranges, and a lot of people don't like saying that, but it is. And then I don't even know what the other track is. But like, why don't we have a clinical? master's degree for advanced you know advanced practice ems and you guys already answered the question there's no financial benefit there's no yeah yeah exactly and that's where the circle meets right so we're in this like cyclone of like um i don't know what the term is but yeah i I don't know what breaks first i I like uh, you make a very compelling argument ken of do we put the licensing requirements first right as the first domino to fall um, the devil's advocates would say that the people that are already suffering with a lack of resources are going to suffer worse. 
And um, from a political perspective, that's just not going to fly. I mean, you know, when it comes down to the legislatures who are going to have to vote on this thing, um, the uh, I, and and I, and I don't know what happened with nursing. I'm I'm honestly not familiar with what happened in the '80s. Um, but and again, I'm not trying. I'm playing devil's advocate here. I'm not like shooting you down. But what I'm saying is, yeah, that's that's. I don't know. It's such a tough like conversation to have because you, I mean, I don't know. And, and what's unfortunate is like. I mean, what if my mom has called 911, right? What if my brother has called 911? Like, the rubber literally hits the road there, and maybe no one shows up. That's the situation I live in, yeah. where I live right now. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, that's the situation a lot of people are in, you know, yeah. and all over the world, yeah. uh, or at least in this country. You know, it's, it's difficult. Um, I used to feel where I lived very secure because I lived right across the street from a fire station that was staffed by a very active volunteer department, and that's no longer the case. They opened up a county ambulance about a mile down the road from where I live. They're always somewhere else, you know? So, I mean, I think that's a reality that we're in now. I, I think... Could things get worse if we upped educational standards temporarily? Maybe. Um, but, you ha- I mean, you, there has to be a way to work around it. You have to mm-hmm. think about some kind of grandfather clause or mm-hmm. uh, bridge to, you know, bridge that gap in, in time somehow. Um, and I, I think, you know, one of the ways you do something like that is, you know, you keep bringing up licensing, you know, or state-level stuff. Uh, but what if, you know, say the NREMT said starting in 2050, so we're going to give you a nice long time. If you want to test for paramedic, you have to have a, an associate's degree. Is Ken Sanner pushing for a federal, uh, initiative? Uh, who are you? You heard the, it here the, first. The, the NREMT <laughs> is a private agency. <laughs> wow. So, right. so it's totally fine. For oh, them so it's to libertarianism at its finest. It is okay. libertarianism, not anarchism. Yeah. Who Dr. Lawner introduced me as an anarchist and a conspiracy theorist the other day, and I, I reject both. However, um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's a that's the kind of move because I'm not talking about overnight, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. All right, starting in 2025, all paramedics that graduate need an associate's degree. Sure. But if you say, hey, starting by 2050, this is the expectation for the the NREMT to provide you an NREMTP card. I think that would be the day that we see the NREMT die. Because, Maybe. Because there's no, like, there's no nothing in code that requires people to use NREMT. There's no. And I think that's why it has to be from a, and it, we just came full circle again, because mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier about how there's no federal EMS, apart from the office of EMS within the Department of Transportation, there is no federal healthcare uh, agency that oversees emergency medical services. Am I correct there? Correct. Well, yeah. except for... I mean, DOT, but you're talking about standardization, well, yeah, which I think yeah, we all can agree yeah. with. You yeah. know, it's funny because uh, we didn't rehearse this, but there's actually a lot of consensus in all of these viewpoints, despite the anarchy uh, that you're talking about there, Ken Center. Because, um, you know, I, I agree with you. Like, why isn't there a clinical track? I mean, think about where paramedic was. So in paramedic school, I learned how to treat CHF with Lasix, Nitro, and Morphine. I learned that back... Rotating tourniquets. Yeah, rotate, right. A um, little bit before my time. And we've come so far, just even the clinical practice of EMS, I mean... You graduate paramedic school, and and by and large, you're comparatively less prepared 
to deal with critical care transport, to deal with mobile integrated health, to deal with public health. Like the vast majority, like my emergency department practice, we learn all about resuscitation, but probably less than 20% of the patients need immediate resuscitation. Mm -hmm. So I have no doubt that we could come up with a master's degree curriculum. I think all of us would agree that the world of paramedicine is vast. The challenge is we all would probably agree there's a need for standards and a need for Mm -hmm. standardization, but how do you fund it, recruit it, and retain it? You know, when you have, with all due respect, fire departments and other municipalities saying, well, why do I need that when I can just uptrain somebody to have the same, you know, scope of practice and put them on the road for comparatively less? And that's where that's the fundamentally difficult economic and political conversation to have because mm-hmm. paramedicine, we, we have an identity crisis. Not everybody agrees where we should go. But yeah. but I think you heard it here first. There is a lot of consensus on, you know, that the the paramedic curriculum needs to evolve to deal with the complexities and the wide-ranging healthcare knowledge that is well it needs to evolve because it needs to follow it where the scope of practice is evolving absolutely listen i'll be the first one to tell you that i don't know how to i mean i took an ultrasound class but i i don't know how to ultrasound you know and but that's like a thing that's happening like and um and there's so many conversations to be and that's just one example like i'm not prepared and that's I, i became a paramedic i think 2017 like so it's not that long ago and that's still a skill completely outside of my scope. I mean, not outside my scope, but outside of my understanding. I mean, you know I mean? and I would not feel comfortable if you gave me an ultrasound right now to, to use it. Um, and I think, and the reason I, I brought that up is because that is one example of many examples of how our profession is moving forward. But we are building, we're planning to build the 10th, 11th, 12th floor of a building that has a crappy foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about scaffolding earlier. Compliments yeah. to you on utilizing the coherent metaphors. Hey, I'm here for you, man. man this is a meta podcast. It's almost like we do this a lot. That's right. There you go. Okay. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's a hard conversation to have. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know where we go. I mean, I, I think the solution is somewhere. I think the solution is somewhere within national advocacy, local advocacy. But that's hard because we don't have a lot of local knowledge of the topic. So it, it would have to be a pointed national advocacy effort with a push from local and state uh, governing legislative bodies, really, uh, to make the to develop the framework and kind of in places that don't have it, you know a a standard yet, kind of you know QS it to their peers and then move forward together. But um, yeah, I mean, I like Ken's idea of a national push of you know by advocacy agencies, a national federal regulatory push. I think yeah. I think we need to just send this episode to Pete Buttigieg. And there you go. He's too busy getting but slammed you know, for you, you said Southwest. We 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 do need to move forward, and <laughs> which I lived through. I'm still waiting on my luggage, but there are examples across this particular country of paramedic programs that do things well, right? And and just like one of the things that EMS fellowships and training and experience gives you is the ability to look at other systems. So I would just add to your point when we talk about scaffolding, you know, go to look at Seattle and Kings County Medic One, go to look at, you know, Wake County and Austin Travis, and you can look at, well, how does that EMS system sustain itself? Because the educational model is fantastic, right? One of many good educational examples over at Seattle and University of Washington and you can say, well, how does the community support and sustain that? And when you talk about, you know, public need, you can look at other systems to see, you know, what um, what underpins that system so that they can deliver, you know, a regionalized standard of care. Now, of course, a lot of it relates to funding and communities that have a decent tax base. But I think that's part of the conversation to your point about local advocacy that informs national advocacy, because uh, I think we're, we're very scattered. And it's, it's very difficult to have this conversation because not all of us are on the same 
on the same page. And the other thing I want to say is it's easy to point it off to locals, but sometimes local communi- communities just don't have the resources to do it. Like, I mean, let's be real. We're not, not everyone plays on the same playing field, right? I mean, I, I'm first generation here. My dad barely spoke English when he got here, right? And there's plenty of communities like that that exist today. Those folks deserve the same EMS coverage, right? And it's not like, you know, because of like how communities developed or have been developed, uh, these people tend to live in, you know, pockets of our communities. And those are might be bigger communities that have zero access to to, uh, their local legislature because quite frankly I mean my my dad didn't have access to local government he was kicked out of his country because of a coup right so like these folks may not even have the education to know that that opportunity exists so the reason I'm bringing that up is because we got uh, we got to think about those folks too because maybe part of the problem is and, and it doesn't just have to be the immigrant community any community made like Ken so was saying before they don't even know we exist this problem exists until it's it's the non-English speaking parent at two in the morning at a community hospital whose kid can't breathe and they're 11 days old. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's where, uh, you know, I don't know, those folks need to be brought into the fold too. Um, and it, maybe that's, that's a, that's a part of the problem of why we don't have more local advocacy. You know, I don't know. Um, but I, I do like the idea of, uh, of, some sort of federal push, whether it's a private, you know, independent uh, corporation or whatever, um, or if it's a, like a federal government push, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think this two pronged approach would, would work. I just don't know where we start. We start by weaponizing Alert Medic One into an advocacy group and petitioning the government and knocking on the door and, and take saying, your ultrasounds to Capitol Hill. Take your ultrasounds to Capitol Hill. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, move, move on like that. But no, I, I I think that was a joke for folks that don't realize it. <laughs> but yeah, we are not storming. Oh, it's too soon. Oh no, I didn't even mean it. I didn't even mean it like no. that. No, 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 no. Nope. Thoughtful pause to let that sink in. <laughs> no, no. But in all seriousness, I mean, you need to have people out there who reach others in settings like sure. this to get people who are listening to people in settings like this to go out there and talk to their neighbor and say, Hey, there's a problem. It needs to be addressed. We need to call our Congress people. We need to write our senators. We need to, you know, talk to our County council person. Mm-hmm. We need to talk to our mayor, we, you know, whoever it is and say, Hey, the EMS system is still living in 1970 and we need to, move on and move up. You know, it'd be interesting and, to read. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I thought you were finished. No, that's okay. Uh, I could rant for hours, I, uh, but well, we do, we need to go into the, the local churches, the community centers, mm-hmm. the schools, uh, you know, and, and reach people. And we, and you're right. We do need to reach uh, these, um, you know, adversely affected communities and these, um, you know, the people affected by the disparities in healthcare and get their stories mm-hmm. and say, hey, you know, I live in this poor community and this is my experience and this isn't acceptable and no one's listening to me because look where I live, look who I am. Mm-hmm. And, and we need those voices to be heard because mm-hmm. those are powerful personal stories and yeah. they're, they're legitimate and they're real. Yeah. yeah there are, so there are, our local parallels to this. And, and, you know, it's funny when you asked about medical direction, politics was one of the last things that I would have thought of, but just to, just to infuse this with a little bit of a political discussion. When I was deputy medical director a long time ago for this particular jurisdiction, um, it was all about all ALS all the time and everybody gets an ambulance. Nobody gets left behind. 
And so that 1980s mentality persisted to the present day, and it took a significant amount of local advocacy with the police department and with community groups to be able to actually say on the air that EMS may not be coming to you if you don't have an emergent need. And so all these discussions, though it's still a little bit far out about nurse triage and other components of EMS, which are not traditionally emergency response, they've just started to happen. So it, it underscores your point about local advocacy. And the only other thing I would say about that is people have to be patient because it takes so much time to change. Steering that ship, even in my jurisdiction, um, is exceedingly difficult, but it is possible because we did not even have that vocabulary of alternative transport, alternative destination, medically informed dispatch until you know a couple of years ago. So local advocacy um, and understanding the local landscape, I think, is a good place to start. Jason, no, I cut you off earlier. Yeah, was... no, 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 you're good, you're good. So what I would be interested in reading is the King County Charter, hmm. right? Because I imagine I did not come prepared with that today. No, I didn't either. But, uh, that, I mean, because that's probably a good example. I mean, because I've heard of them, right? Like, but I don't know what, you know. Um, and they're so, that, uh, because there's no reason not to plagiarize stuff. The names you know? are somewhat similar, too. Medic One. King yeah, Medic so One. I, uh, when I was doing the initial research for the podcast, I was, like, Googling random names, ideas that I had made. And uh, that, that came up for this, but no one had taken this name, so I took it. That's because it's a good name. And let's not forget a plug for the physician involvement. That system also was very much um, co-evolved with physicians out there, you know, Mickey Eisenberg and Compass, all those people and the University of Washington. But it's a just one shining, one shining light amidst a lot of other alert lights across the country. I want to go back to this medical director conversation. That was like so 20 minutes ago. I know. <laughs> but you brought it up back with the physician. So uh, you, you were talking about earlier – you graduate paramedic school and with way less education, you're able to, uh, so paramedics graduate paramedic school, right? Obviously with um, way less education, but way more of a scope than their hospital equivalents, right? Like they're, uh, I can't think of anyone else in within a hospital that with, with an 18 month certificate can go like. I was top in my class. First of all, 18 <laughs> month plus, you know, yeah. Um, what, <laughs> what would be, so, uh, on the surface, I imagine people would say that having a physician response element would be good. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on that, and then I'll tell you my controversial view on the topic. So that's a good. So selfishly, since it took me what decades to get a car um, in my jurisdiction, I, I love it. I love operational response. I, I would. This is a complicated topic. I would say first of all that um, if you train paramedics to do the right thing, and you're going to want to pause. For I you. mean, you're going to have to start editing. So I think it is, it's a difficult question. Now, I, I mentioned jokingly that it took me uh, a decade or so to get a car, you know, in the EMS jurisdiction. So selfishly, there's a special place in my heart for a physician operation response. I think that if you train your paramedics and your EMTs well enough, it is rare that you are going to have a situation in which you actually need a physician, right? For the, for the vast majority of things, if you incentivize your providers with excellent training protocols and education, you can take care of the vast majority. I think that's especially true for critical care transport. Um, I do think there are there is a role for physicians. I mean, certainly you do not need physicians managing most routine out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. Um, I think where the physician response complements EMS nicely is the ability to do things and to bring the medicine to the field. So, for example, if you look at London HEMS, you know, what do they do well? They do things like Reboa, but that only works well because it's their system. They administer blood. They do ultrasounds. 
So in a highly regionalized system where you do not have access to a hospital in every corner, or if you are remotely located from you know a tertiary care facility, bringing the medicine to the patient to do a more advanced triage um, is certainly a benefit, right? Because sometimes you cannot always guarantee that the appropriate level of care. So rural blunt trauma patients, for example, the literature would suggest that sometimes if you don't have aviation, they can languish a little bit too long. So I think there is a role, but I also think depending upon the system, you have to consider where you want to put the physician. And if you were to ask me what the most valuable sort of return on my investment of time is, it's in the shaping of protocols, it's in education, it's in overall systems guidance, it's in medically informed dispatch. If, if, if I could do one thing, it would be to put myself in dispatch into figure out and work out how we could really do some good triage and make sure that we connect the right patient to the right resource at the right time. So I love it. I think it's one of the most fun parts of my job. Um, and certainly I like to think that I can help, but the vast majority of cases, um, you can probably manage with a well-resourced EMS system. So I love um, that. Yeah. I love it too. Because let um, uh, uh, me just, uh, yeah. only cause I asked, uh, my follow-up question was going to be something to do with physicians and Dunning Kruger. So, but go ahead and then no, I'm make, yeah. ask your question. My question can wait. Yeah. So, there's a disconnect, in my opinion, of medical education, even with the EMS fellowship, that is a recent requirement, and the actual duties that need to be done. And uh, in my anecdotal experience, I have ran into physicians that believe that their medical education and their residency training in emergency medicine prepares them to have an EMS operational role. And that makes, and that prepares, maybe not prepares them, but that makes them well qualified. And what ends up happening is them being completely disconnected with the actual operational needs of a department. Um, I think an EMS, uh, I think an EMS uh, fellowship is a great way to do it. I don't know the, the realm of EMS fellowships, but I would hope that when building these EMS fellowships, that operational members of departments that are not physicians are consulted in making the, the, the program. Because um, I, I don't think the solution is having solely physicians showing folks how to run operations in a department. Because we, just like how we have very well-versed physicians that have, you know, run the, the medical side of things, I think that especially in the past decade, there has been a lot of leaders in that are EMS professionals that have come up with a lot of best practices. And I imagine all these places that we've talked about, like King County, for example, have um, operational leaders that are not physicians uh, that are key to the operation. Um, so I guess th that would be my follow-up question. How, how do we address that And with knowing that these fellowships already exist? So how, how do we address the rest of the of, of the? It, maybe it's not even a problem. Maybe it's just an opportunity, but yeah. Well, I think we've got to raise awareness, first of all, because I would agree with you. And a big part, I, I did EMS Fellowship Program Direction for the Allegheny Health Network for three years. We started, well, it took us a year to get started, but um, the, one of the benefits is you have to build a longitudinal relationship with an EMS program. So EMS fellowships do not exist with a in the absence of a good working relationship. So the ideal world would be to have your operationalized, <clears throat> pardon me, EMS physicians part of the particular service. And most fellowships require a longitudinal involvement. Um, and I would have to agree with you, despite the fact that um, I went into emergency medicine, at least in part, because I thought it was somewhat similar to EMS, meaning there would be a working relationship. The vast majority of requirements in EM residencies are not very EMS focused. And I, with all due respect, there are some <clears throat> EMS, there are some EMS, or I, I should say, 
there are some emergency medicine residencies that have a huge EMS focus. So for example, they require an EMS month or they'll have an associate medical director tract or something similar. However, that's not the case with emergency medicine residencies. So I would agree with you uh, on the whole that just because you graduate with emergency medicine does not mean that you are able to operate. And I think sometimes it takes months in the field and most EMS fellowships will emphasize that. You need a track record, you need a good working relationship, um, that would be the ideal. And, and if you're, if you're quote unquote, just an emergency medicine physician doing medical direction, I think that's possible too, but you have to have an acclimatization period. You know, you have to be able to work with the system and build those longitudinal relationships. Um, and speaking from my own jurisdiction, not all of our medical directors are EMS boarded or trained, but those that are involved have a long and established track record of being involved with the system and are not just quote unquote freelancing and imposing doctor duties on top of EMS operations. And I mean, I don't think it necessarily needs to be. I mean, so, and maybe you can talk about that a little bit, the National Association of EMS Physicians and like, you know, and, and, sure. and the board certification and all and every all the players in there, because I think most paramedics or most EMS folks don't know that. Um, but uh, I would also say that I, I don't think it necessarily needs to be that, I know that right now it needs to be that everyone needs to be fellowship trained now, correct? So this is great because it gets into a little bit of a, of a selfish uh, preference. So the... The requirements are very different for medical direction. However, if you want to be board certified in pre-hospital and disaster medicine or what is called emergency medical services, uh, as of several years ago, you need to do an EMS fellowship. Mm -hmm. But to function as an EMS physician, you do not need an EMS fellowship. Um, as you know, if you look at just MIMS Comar, for example, sure. it doesn't yeah. even require emergency medicine. Of course. Yeah. So that's where, again, the local advocacy happens. So um, services can certainly require it. And I have seen... Uh, a significant trend towards requiring or at least encouraging EMS board certification, which is excellent, um, but that's far from the norm, especially given the whole discussion we had about payment. So, no, it's not required, but I would say you could make an argument about being preferred. So let me, uh, I mean, not totally switching topics, still staying on the medical director topic. Let me ask you a question, and this is straight out of one of Moose's favorite books, the Nancy Caroline uh, Paramedic series. Mm. Oh, I actually, I see it staring down on us. It's from, actually, from yes, it's high. in a place of honor. It's looking down on us, providing us wisdom. And Why light. is it in a box? To protect it. Okay, all right. Yes. Thank you. So uh, in that book, they describe the medical director's job as being the medical conscience of the EMS system. Do you feel that you are providing or acting as a medical conscience of the systems that you supervise? Um, 100%. And that's why it's funny. When you look at the language, um, there's a big push in the professional you know, EMS physician world to be called the chief medical officer versus a medical director. Because a lot of times you don't direct people, right? I am not on scene all the time saying, you know, Captain so-and-so, please insert the IO on the lateral, you know, whatever it is. Um, I think the medical conscience is very important because – at the end of the day, right, when, when a service chooses to spend money, um, there is only a limited pool. And I think it is up to the medical director, whoever is responsible for that particular system, to say, we value this public health initiative or we want to prioritize this, right? So um, I, I'd say now my conscience is not uh, legally binding. Um, I would love to say that whatever I think gets implemented and that it's far from the truth. But I would say that um, uh, very clearly, even in my own jurisdiction, although it might not seem like it, um, I have a voice. And so that means that the medical director, whoever that is, if you are getting involved to the point where you have that level of responsibility, if you don't have time with the chief officer, if you don't have time with the local politicians, it's probably not worth it for you to, to get involved. Because I would not be nearly as remotely satisfied as I am currently 
um, if I did not have that type of time. So being the conscience is different than exercising your will over a system, but I think it underscores the need for that type of involvement. So yes. No, I, I think I think your voice ha- does have a lot of impact in your jurisdiction, though, uh, for the street level providers. I mean, knowing people that work there, allegedly, um, possibly, possibly. Uh, you know, I know of instances where somebody may have wanted to do something on a call, and the thought came up and it was discussed and the the thought was, well, our medical director doesn't want us to do X, Y, Z because of ABC. And that's good enough. You know, that stops the discussion. You Are know, we talking about gonna... naloxone and cardiac arrest? Because that's a, a great topic of mine. Well, I would love to talk about <laughs> naloxone and cardiac arrest. <laughs> Sorry, um, please continue. Did we ever do that, actually? We, I know we've I been wondering. Stay tuned for Alert Medic 1. Next up. You just... Put yourself in for another session. There you there. Go. I think we had an episode about naloxone, <laughs> didn't we? Like way back, we did one when the pulmonary edema thing was popping okay. off. Okay, it probably came up then, but yeah. I don't think we've actually done an episode about naloxone. Sorry, I need to be restrained. I won't talk about naloxone again. No, it's a great topic um, be- because I mean, and that brings us kind of full circle back to <laughs> you know what Moose said about we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know how to read research studies. Which, by the way, can I bring this up? I went to uh, a certain educational conference a few months ago, and we were having a discussion, and uh, someone was talking about research studies, and I, I used the famous line, you know, I think a lot of us don't know how to read these studies as well as we should, myself included, and some old guy bit off my head about how, well, you're an educator, and it's in the curriculum that you need to know how to read a research study and blah, blah. I'm like, whoa, dude, chill a little bit. I'm just saying that we could probably all learn something here, you know? like there's like, And I guarantee he doesn't know how to read a research study. There's clinical study investigators either. that don't know how to do it. Like, that, their right. full-time job is to be, like, you know, PIs, over, and they don't know how to, like, you know what I mean? And, and that's coming from them. They've told me, you know. Right. Like, I've mentors that do that job like uh, what do we know then like you know right. like well i and and there's there's an ego problem in ems if we're being honest oh absolutely <laughs> yeah. well you you know again you hit the nail on the head I, I think also the way we process information in modern times is difficult so uh certainly not to disparage twitter and facebook but if if i could if i had a nickel for every time people said you know i saw this somewhere and they they picture a soundbite i think it's not only learning how to read it, but to apply the research in context. And that is something speaking from somebody who's now, I mean, I got my paramedic in 1997 and I am still, still learning. This was after rotating tourniquets, by the way, but I am still learning how to read research and then secondarily how to apply it. So I would agree with you and you show me that old provider and, and I'll have uh, talking to him or her. Okay. I will. I'll, I'll, find, I'll track him down. Well, yeah. cause like, so there is EMS research-specific education that's available to everyone. I, I, there is, there's an EMS research consortium, isn't there, like out west in like L.A.? Is it L.A.? I mean, there's there's many of them. I mean, you know, EMS fellowships actually sponsor didactics that are required. So there's consortiums, there's research groups. Well, I'm talking about for clubs. like paramedics to just Google and oh. take. Um, the one I'm talking about, um, uh, I, I ended up not being a huge fan of. But mm-hmm. regardless... Um, I, I think there's information out there. I think there just needs to be updated information. And I think if we were to talk about curriculums, I don't think that a block is the answer. I think it needs to be a, 
a regular part of EMS education. The entire 18 months, we should be doing journal clubs. We should be even talking about the idea of journal clubs. We should be... Um, uh, so before I was in EMS, I, I, I was in pharmacy, and I was working as an inpatient pharmacy technician at uh, one of our like larger hospitals here. And they had their pharmacy students had to do a presentation like there was a uh, the uh, it was a large it was a weekly thing and then their pharmacy residents had to do a grand rounds that was also weekly um i i don't see why we can't do that at our level i mean and and Agreed. It, you know and it doesn't need to be a big grandiose thing it can just be a, sh- uh, a departmental grand rounds well maybe if there was a jurisdictional ems district captain that would want to organize something like that a theoretical medical director could support a journal club well i was thinking i wish my organization had some sort of online based learning platform where we could do case studies (laughs) and you know review do basically grand rounds you know and well speaking locally we can make at least some of that happen even unofficially well well because the thing is it's beneficially suggested before by certain ems captains but we won't get into that well because the thing is we uh, it's definitely an ego issue but we uh, paramedics definitely need their handheld through research like and i'm not so do doctors to, yeah sure but like uh, yeah i don't i'm not denying that but but uh especially if there are resources that know uh how to at least initially interpret the, the research then uh i think it's a great uh, educational opportunity and it really, yeah. it just shouldn't be mandated. But yeah, I, I think it's a great opportunity. So that is required as an EMS fellowship. There is a block of research. So, um, and we do a fairly multidisciplinary approach because obviously you can't do EMS research without EMS. And so um, I know at least um, many of the fellowships encourage participation. And that's very eye-opening, right? Because we're very fortunate to have clinical research. Um, it's very difficult in EMS, although there are people that do this. Um, it's very difficult to have independently funded uh, research studies. There are very few organizations that are really well positioned to do that level of high quality research. Uh, however, when you talk about clinical research, every day is a clinical practice environment and a learning environment. And so it it does not hold that we don't have an opportunity. You could do clinical research, which is you know related to quality assurance. So lots of opportunities and not only being affiliated with academic centers, but also in our daily practice. Mm-hmm. Dead air. <laughs> well, well, I was going to say we're Next coming we're coming up on an hour. Okay, how do you guys feel? I feel good. I feel like I want to grow up to be a medical director. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I want to be a medical director when I grow up. Well, we can make it happen, man. Yeah, be the change you want to see in the world. It's too late. It's too late for me now. Hey, I was in medical school side. at twenty-seven, man. Yeah, really. It's never too late. It just depends on how much late. debt you want to be in. Just depends how much set you want to. It's be almost in. like the system is totally broken for training physicians. Oh, that hurts. It, I mean, it is tough. I mean, it, well, that's a whole other issue. Well, but. And you kind of said it yourself, though. Like you said that okay, that your experience as a paramedic made you better for the patient care, but did did not help you in uh, getting into medical school. That, that should be an oxymoron. Well, you know, here's the interesting thing. Like I, so there's two separate, there's two separate things. It helped me in patient care because remember for medical school, and this goes back to what you're talking about. I would say the training paradigm of all the things that are wrong with medicine, the training paradigm is pretty much okay. I mean, you clearly need a lot of theory, right? To become a physician. So traditionally you have your two years and I mean, you spend dissecting bodies in the first year and the second year. And the real big deal is, you know, well, how do you integrate clinical education? 
but before you're actually touching patients, which is interesting, like before you're actually out there practicing, you know, you have four years of experience, two years of mentored clinical experience, and then residency is a hierarchical graduated clinical experience. And I think that overall paradigm is a very good one to train a doctor. And we could get into what's the difference between that and nurse practitioners and, you know, how does the clinical experiential curriculum, you know, prepare you. So I think overall it's actually very good, but I also would say there is a disconnect because when you're trying, and this is just probably supply and demand, because when you're trying to narrow down, you know, who gets these precious medical school spots, you have to figure out who's an academic risk. And so, yes, there's a much bigger emphasis placed upon science, um, GPA, previously MedCAT scores. So that's kind of a different question. I mean, I do think it does function, the medical apparatus to graduate. Like once you graduate an emergency medicine residency, with all due respect for my colleagues, theoretically, each emergency medicine physician should be the standard, you know, you should have a standard of clinical practice, sure. right? Um, but yes, you're right that sometimes there's a little bit of a disconnect. It's not a very straightforward path for paramedics to get into medical school. And I don't think there needs to be. Uh, I, and this is not me advocating for paramedics to have a direct role. This is more so taking a look at the general lay of the land. Yeah. Um, the You said it yourself. I mean, we, uh, the, uh, and I don't think there needs to be a, a, gauge of how students will do with the the theory rigor right the rigor of the theory that they're like they're going to be learning the, the physiological concepts stuff like that i just don't think that we are measuring it the right way i mean i think it's that i think the medical education system has fallen victim to the same pitfalls that every other educational system has has fallen to which is um, I think we're pushing our youth, and I'm realizing this now, to go through education that they might ne- not necessarily be equi- like That's prepared fair. for. And then, I mean, and sure, yeah, I'll admit it. I'm talking about my own experience. Like you kind of go into a school, you're not really realizing what you're getting into, and you ruin your, your chances for life. And uh, I've seen plenty of people that, um, uh, you know, maybe, you know, decided to, you know, they decided it wasn't for them, but they were so far into the process, they had nothing else to do. And maybe they were in 200 grand of debt. You know, I, I just think the whole system's like, uh, needs to be looked at. You know, just um, for the small positive notes here, like UFOs shining in a scintillating sky that you can look at. But um, I would offer that at least in my anecdotal experience, I do not have any data to back this up. But if you look at our emergency medicine class that I'm affiliated with, we've got former military special forces operators, we've got nurses, we've got PAs, and that is a shift that I've seen. When I went to medical school, um, it was much more common. The relative age was much younger. Sure. And I am seeing a difference that several, I mean, we have one resident now that worked for several years as a nurse. And, and I agree with you. I would argue that once you have that degree of emotional maturity and patient contact, it makes you a better medical student. Um, I don't know if that's emphasized in the selection process, at least up front. Sure. Do you think in general we send people to college and into trade school too early? That's a that's a great question. I mean, I think probably for these major careers, right? Because yeah. saying when people say they want to become a doctor, right, that is a significant life investment in terms of training and, and college may not give you the good um, overall orientation experience. And mm-hmm. so, yes, a qualified yes, right? Because for people, for the average, if you take people with no experience and you take a person with a paramedic, a nurse or a PA or whatever it is in some healthcare, one I think will be much uh, better prepared to navigate some of the the challenges than the other would be. So I think it is misnomer. A lot of people think that you know they want to become a doctor, but they may not have a good understanding of what that is. And it's not like your undergraduate curriculum really prepares you. And that's a challenge. So in that, I would agree, right? Um, and that's why for those of us that, I mean, EMS is a great way to bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot yep. more people in emergency medicine, certainly, 
that have EMT or paramedic certification. But um, I would agree. It's not, I mean, I think sometimes there's a very much of a, um, a, an accelerated pathway, which does not impart the requisite knowledge or at least information for people that want to pursue a graduate medical career. And again, this is anecdotal, but I 1000% agree with you that people want to become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer because that's what they've been told to do. Sure. And, and it 90% of the time in my anecdotal experience, it is 1000% an ego issue. Hmm that they think that there's a, sta- a social status that is uh, attributed to physicians and they have nothing and they have this general vague idea of, oh yeah, I want to help people because they know that's the right answer to say when people ask you why you want to be a doctor. Um, but when you dive into it, they've had zero actual exposure to medicine. And I bet that translates into uh, doctors who maybe don't want to be doctors when they finally have gotten through the trudging of the journey that you've described. Um, uh, that's why I think that there, there should be a reevaluation of who we are letting and how we're letting into. I, I, I agree with you, Ken. I was not mentally mature enough to go to college when I went to UMBC. I think that of all places from a professional uh, level, I think the FBI does a great job that you have to have three years of professional experience before they even look at you. Right. That's uh, an interesting point. Yeah. I think they do that thing right. You have to have a bachelor's degree, sure, but then you have to have three years of professional experience somewhere. I think that the medical education system of the, of the United States and of the, uh, you know, of the, all the places that pattern us, uh, pattern themselves behind the United States should take a look at who are we expecting, uh, accepting into our ranks. And I think that something happens in those three to five years of professional, like you said, you were a paramedic for five years. Something happens that that thing is maturity and that thing is life exposure. Um, but instead, we have these unilateral students that um, they mark their identity by their journey, and that's it. They do nothing else. Their journey to medical school is their identity, and we end up, I imagine, we create weaker doctors on the back end. Speaking as a weaker doctor, I would agree. <laughs> well, you just, you just what, talked what about are you? I, I didn't. I, you're actually the opposite, right? Because you, <laughs> yeah. But you, it's funny. When we were talking about what does paramedic do, I think you could make an argument if we could ever support it, the, you know, as a track towards more professional education. The challenge is that infrastructure also doesn't exist. Yep. But what if you could work it out that you could get some type of credit? And to take it one step further, PA school does that very well. Mm-hmm. So PA school graduates very good clinicians, and they are not going to look at you unless you have typically um, some type of good clinical experience. Yep. And I think you obviously need that degree of maturity and critical thinking, which can be imparted to you by a professional job, but the same does not exist in the usual pathway to medical school. So there we've solved maybe one problem on the uh, local advocacy, the paramedic as pre-medical track or pre-health professional track. It's amazing what great minds the, working together can do. Like, that's right. So you saw it here first as <laughs> many other things. <laughs> I will right, well, listen. We the, it's been super cool to have you on. Oh, absolutely! Thank you so much, and we'd love to have you back on because I think we should do a clinical topic next. I would love to do a <laughs> clinical talk. Yeah, topic we've already we've already bored everybody to death with political problems we can't solve, so I owe it to them. But I don't it, even know what I'm going to call this episode. Look, it would be my <laughs> medical direction. Abandon all hope, ye who enter medical direction. But um, but seriously, it is my pleasure, and for people that have lasted this long, um, I know it's been a lot of back and forth and not a lot of absolutes, but I, I very much appreciate the forum. So uh, if there's anything I can do, I would love to take you up on that invitation. Thank you, sir. Of course. You finish Thank you, everyone, for listening to the, the Alert Medic One podcast. Please check us out on uh, Facebook. And is that all we have now? Twitter? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I, we definitely don't have Twitter. Uh, Just listen to the podcast. Check us Facebook. Uh, leave Rate us a us, like, yeah. rating, and a review on the podcast app of your choice. Be safe out there. 
have a good day and we'll see you next time on alert medic one good night You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.